we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Cos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city, and kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and having come to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple, with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took them in, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. 
He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob, the people followed, crying out, away with him! As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? And Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, well, what Paul said, we'll get to it on a later day. <laughs> Today's question, why this enormous and violent reaction simply to Paul's being there? that in the supposed Gentile presence, what is it that has happened to drive these people to such an impassioned and furious response to a guy who just wants to spread the good news? What was it about these troubled times that drove these people to such a frenzy? And what about our troubled times? Have you heard about Mark Stein's book, after America. <laughs> Get ready for Armageddon. Wow. <laughs> Is America really done for? Are we really entering times as horrific as that of the first century? And if we are, how should we live? And if the first century was so awful, how is it that Christianity spread through the entire known world during that time? Wouldn't that make it a good time? To discover what's going on, we need to understand the history behind the reaction of these Jews, and then maybe we can discover in this text what we should expect in the troubled time that we are entering. And maybe, most importantly, how we should live in our troubled times. Now, to start, we have a curious variation in reaction that we must consider. Back in Acts 15, at the Jerusalem Council, the church originally made the proclamation that was reiterated here. The Jews didn't get up in arms then. Now, true, adherence to Christianity was vastly increased in the intervening years, but that didn't change the beliefs any. Why this violence now? Okay, actually, we have to first go back 200 years to one Antiochus IV. By murder and intrigue, <laughs> he became ruler of the Greek Seleucid Empire, one of the four kingdoms that Daniel prophesied would form out of Alexander's empire. Now, whatever else is true about Antiochus, we do know that he had an enormous ego. <laughs> he called himself Antiochus Epiphanes, God made manifest. <laughs> now, others, instead of calling him Epiphanes, called him Epimenes, the insane one. <laughs> so, uh, but Antiochus appears to have been a very capable general and he extended his kingdom all the way south to Egypt. There a Roman delegate literally 
drew a line in the sand telling Antiochus that if he did not agree to withdraw before crossing the line, Rome would declare war on his empire. Incredible, this one guy came out and stood in front of his whole army, drew a line in the sand and stood there waiting for him. Actually, it's an amazing story. You should read it sometime. But Antiochus, wisely, and he really had no choice, (laughs) agreed to abandon his conquests in that direction. Now, you can imagine the blow to such an inflated ego. And couple that with another interesting historical fact. A certain Jewish family had made a political alliance with Antiochus and, giving him a large sum of money, had their man installed as high priest by force. As we said earlier, a false rumor reached Jerusalem that Antiochus had been killed in Egypt So the high priest who had been deposed by Antiochus and his allies, they gathered an army around him and they ousted the false high priest. Now, you have the thoroughly discredited and disgraced Antiochus Epiphanes making his way home with his tail between his legs. And lo and behold, as he passes Israel, he finds out that his choice for high priest has been drummed out of office. In his egocentric anger, He decides to do these Jews in for good. Now, he understood that what defined a Jew was circumcision, sacred food, sacred times, sacred places, all outlined in their sacred text, the Torah, the law. So he attacks just these things. Let me read a few Jewish records. In 168 BC, Antiochus Epiphanes dared to occupy Jerusalem, enter the Holy of Holies, desecrate the sanctuary by offering unclean animals upon the altar of burnt offerings, pollute the whole building by sprinkling it with water in which flesh had been boiled, dedicated the temple itself to Jupiter Olympius, and erected the statue of that deity and plundered the temple treasures. Another says, Sabbaths and festivals were not to be observed, circumcision was not to be performed, the sacred books were to be surrendered, and the Jews were compelled to offer sacrifices to the idols that had been erected. Folks, they're actually being very, very polite in their language. Antiochus ordered the collection and burning by force of every copy of the scriptures that he could that could be found. He murdered priests who taught the law and killed anyone caught with a copy of it. He set up festivals at the same time as those given in scripture and killed anyone celebrating the biblical festivals rather than his. He disallowed worship on the Sabbath and forced them to work on that day. He had pork brought into the temple and men were told to eat it. If they did not, he killed them. We have a record of two women who were caught after having their baby boys circumcised. He paraded them in disgrace, we're using PG language here, with their babies around town, then brought them to the top of the wall of the temple and as a warning to all who would consider circumcision, threw women and babies 200 feet onto the pavement below. Nice guy, no? One historian of the time records that 40,000 Jews were killed and the same hauled off as slaves in just the first wave. In all, perhaps 200,000 were killed. This, of course, could not go on and the Maccabean revolt was soon underway, which eventually brought Israel its freedom, well, coupled with wars against all the other borders of the Seleucids 
Everyone around him knew Antiochus' forces were badly weakened. And it will come as no surprise to you to hear that not long after this, Antiochus was in his turn murdered and that troubled time was over. Now you're saying, didn't he say that was 200 years before Paul and this maddened Jewish crowd? What's this got to do with Acts 21 and the differences between that and Acts 15? Now remember, there's no TV, movies, newspapers, or other entertainment back then. At night, Jews rehearsed their history. They repeated verbatim what their fathers, fathers, fathers had experienced. Every man, woman, and child in Israel knew the story. And especially the horrific attacks of Antiochus. So they heard over and over and over. What defines us as Jews is circumcision, sacred food, sacred times, sacred places, all outlined in our sacred text, the Torah, the law. After the Maccabean revolt, for nearly a century and a half, Israel lived under its own rule. They continually rehearsed their history and what it was that made them Jews. And then came the Romans. And by the time of our story, Jewish-Roman relations were already tense. Earlier, a Roman soldier had lewdly exposed himself in the temple grounds. Josephus estimates that 10,000 people were trampled to death in the ensuing riot. Another soldier burned a Jewish law scroll and the Roman governor agreed to have him executed rather than risk another riot. So fragile were Roman-Israeli relations that the Romans had agreed to let them execute any Gentile who entered the inner courts, even if he was a Roman citizen. But, most importantly, between Acts 15 and 21, a new Caesar arises in the spirit of his Greek predecessor Antiochus, Caligula. His real name was Gaius Julius Caesar Augustus Germanicus. To say he had an ego issues is a gross understatement. He often appeared in the garb of a god. Hercules, Mercury, Apollo, Venus. Yes, Venus. <laughs> and yes, he was sexually perverse like all but one of the Caesars. He even had many heads on statues of gods removed and images of his own head installed in their place. Some would have liked it to have been his head rather than just an image of it. You think maybe this guy had an overdeveloped ego? It got even worse. He started demanding that he be addressed as a god. And this megalomaniac like Antiochus before him, thought these Jews needed correcting. In fact, Philo wrote that Caligula regarded the Jews with most especial suspicion, as if they were the only persons who cherished wishes opposed to his. <laughs> now, he was not about to travel all the way to Jerusalem himself, so he ordered a full statue of himself be placed in the temple in Jerusalem and be its primary point of worship. Now imagine all those Jews thinking about their history and seeing what they thought was, in Christianity, the decay of their religion. What do you think their reaction will be? For more than a year, the Jews lived under the threat that Caligula's statue would be put in their temple. For that whole time, the governor of Syria found ways to postpone the order. 
He knew the incredible riot it would cause if he actually did it. And finally, Herod Agrippa convinced Caligula to rescind the order. And Paul? Paul stepped right into the middle of this boiling cauldron of people seething with anger and jealousy. But understand, the Bible doesn't say that the defining characteristics of God's people was to be circumcision, sacred food, sacred time, sacred places, nor even the sacred text. Those things were to demonstrate that they were God's people. Adhering to these things was supposed to be a witness that they acknowledged the Lord as their God. But instead of seeing themselves as God's people, they had come to identify themselves as Jews, the people who practice circumcision, eat certain sacred foods, have certain sacred times and places in a specific sacred text. They were not living their faith, they were just acting it out. <sighs> okay, there's a lot of history there. Are you ready? Take a breath. Now we have a pretty good grasp of the turmoil of those troubled times. And with all that knowledge, let's see what we can find in the story. When we had landed at Tyre, and having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Paul's first encouragement after leaving the Ephesian elders. And there are quite a few ways we can take that last sentence. Perhaps it just means that the Spirit told them Paul was going to suffer in Jerusalem, so they, loving him as they do, told him not to go there. Or was the Spirit's message meant to tell Paul to pause a few days <laughs> so he'd arrive at the temple at just the right time? Oh. Did you catch that Luke said they sought out the disciples? Paul had apparently never met these people, but knowing he had a week before the ship sailed, maybe, he took the time to find them. Now, why would he do this? Well, for one, he knew he was about to be in very deep water. And it's good to reinforce yourself with godly people before you dive into the fight. Before we go through troubled times, and we will, please let us develop relationships with those who love God. It's like getting your inoculations before you get diphtheria <laughs> or typhoid or polio or whatever. We were made to live in community. Make sure the community that you live in is one that believes. But really, if we understand Paul at all, we know that he didn't go there to get encouragement for himself. He went there to help them, to teach them and encourage them. Um, throughout this story, we'll see constant similarities between this and two other Jerusalem experiences. Jesus' final trip there. Well, until he comes again. And the murder of Stephen. This is one of those similarities for the whole trip towards the final Passover. Jesus both encouraged and taught the disciples on the very night that he was betrayed. He encouraged and taught them in the upper room. And Stephen's speech, filled with teaching and encouragement for those who would listen, there's something about hearing a person who suffers for what they believe and yet holds, it on, holds on to it tightly. If we're caught in troubled times, let's use those times to teach and encourage others. The parting in verses 5 and 6 certainly reminds us of that of Paul's from the Ephesian elders. Let's remember those lessons we learned last week to admonish with tears intensely and with concern to love in humility, 
to live life, both the good and the trials, in such a way that people see Jesus in us, to have courage to tell what they need to hear of repentance, of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But note also that all those who knew Paul intimately loved and cared for him. Just as you consider the source in teaching, consider the source in love. Is the love that is expressed to you really other-focused, or is it self-serving? These people were willing to risk their lives by being identified with Paul. They cared for him above themselves, even the wives and children. That's how godly people care. That's why, amongst many other reasons, we want to hang around godly people. That's why we want to be a godly person. In verse 7, we see Paul repeating the pattern of Tyre and in Ptolemaeus, albeit for just a day. And then on the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Do you remember, clear back in chapter 6, <laughs> that seven men were picked to help run the church? One of them was Stephen, another Philip. Paul, then using his Hebrew name Saul, succeeded in killing Stephen and was aiming to kill Philip. Now he's staying in Philip's house with his family and the two are encouraging one another. Can you imagine the heart of Philip as he looks at the one who tried to kill him for speaking of Jesus, now willing to die for Jesus? And what in the world were Paul's thoughts as he enjoyed the presence of Philip as he was encouraged by Philip's wonderful daughters, he must have thought, what would have been if I had carried out my evil plan? But God is good, and he made sure Paul got to stay with these wonderful believers. And Paul must have enjoyed it, for they spent many days there. And then the prophet Agabus comes. Did you notice he didn't say, don't go to Jerusalem? <laughs> he just said and graphically illustrated, be ready, Paul. And that whole graphically is, if the message that we have to tell is really that important, maybe we should consider some vibrant ways to tell it. Well, what about Luke and Paul's other friends? When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. We all want those we love to be safe and not to experience pain. But that may not be what God wants. And frankly, it's a fool's wish. <laughs> this life just isn't like that. And let's not break the hearts of the saints by trying to keep them from doing what they know God wants them to do. Just because we don't want them to experience pain. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. Let the will of the Lord be done. Give people all the good counsel you can and then leave it in God's hands. That is so easy to say. <laughs> yeah, so hard to do. Paul gets one more encouragement before he arrives in Jerusalem. He gets to say with Nason, an early disciple. It's a wonderful thing to be encouraged by someone who has been in the faith a long, long time. Seek out those kind of people. And if you are a person with a few more trips around the sun than others, <clears throat> please do encourage them 
You have more influence than you know. For Luke, Paul, and the whole bunch that was with him, when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. With all the apprehension Paul certainly had, it must have been wonderful to see joy in the faces of those brothers when they saw him. Godly people should always be careful to show the joy of meeting with other godly people. They may need it. Yeah, so there are problems. <laughs> Just let them sit on the back burner for a bit. First, encourage your brothers and sisters. So the next day they go into James and all the elders, that is the pastors, in Jerusalem, and they get to tell them all the wonderful work that God was doing through them with the Gentiles. Uh, when we hear good news from other expressions of God's church, make sure we glorify him with them. That's also an encouragement. But these guys are pastors in Jewish churches. <laughs> They're concerned for the church that they pastor, Jews who have believed. It's good to share our concerns together. We should not get upset because someone tells us problems that have cropped up around the work that we do. It's okay. Each of us can only care for a certain number of people. Sometimes the good that we are doing due to the troubled times may cause tension for others. So let's work together to figure out God's plan in each situation. In this situation, I wonder, was the zealousness for the law good? Or was it brought about by false teachers? Or by misplaced patriotism? Notice the words, circumcision and our customs. Their congregations are worried about that with which their culture is worried. They should be, of course, but maybe they shouldn't have so directly echoed their complaints. Ah, maybe it was okay, I don't know. For sure, the culture saw Paul as the representative of that which is opposed to who they are. There was certainly nothing wrong with a Christian who was a Jew keeping the Old Testament law, so these pastors advised Paul to do that in a very public manner. And sometimes it's okay to make a show of accepting that in the culture, which is not opposed to Christianity. Sometimes it's okay to embrace their sports, like football even, I don't know, or their music, uh, maybe even rap music. Well, no, not problematic rap music. But I'll try, I'll try, I'll try. <laughs> All right, maybe embrace things. In fact, it may be wise to do. At the same time, as is illustrated in verse 25, it's not good to demand excessive or unnecessary changes of behavior from those of another culture. Uh, a church building, for instance, built somewhere else in the world, does not have to have a steeple. Honest, it doesn't. It's okay for people in other countries to wear their native dress when they come together with other believers in their own country. And if we go down there, we ought to try to accommodate as much as we can to make them comfortable worshiping with us, just as they ought to adapt if they come into our assembly. But it's not okay to accept sin, here summed up as sexual immorality, in any believer at any time. Paul agrees with their wise counsel, carries it out in precise detail, and as we said, very publicly. And it almost works. <laughs> when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. From Asia. Where Ephesus is, where Paul has been for the last three years. 
And what are the false charges? Against the people, against the law, against this place. Interesting that law and this place are the same charges that were brought against Stephen. And then their trump card. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. He even brought Greeks into the temple like Antiochus, like Caligula threatened to do. They saw Paul as a traitor. He's not a true patriot of Israel. He befriends those lousy Gentiles. It's called xenophobia, an unreasonable fear or even hatred of that which is different. In their case, one could hardly blame them. Some particular Gentiles had done some pretty nasty things to them. The problem is that they don't understand God's plan, only their own desires. So you have a group of ultra-patriotic zealots who are not seeking after God. Their reaction is all too predictable. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple and at once the gates were shut. It's fascinating. As soon as they get out, they shut the gates immediately. They were more than willing to violently attack and even kill Paul. But they didn't want any violence in the temple. They were beating Paul in all their zealous defense of the sacred text without using the proper procedure required in the very law that they were supposed to be upholding. You ever notice this amazing inconsistency in people? Students in our state schools are told to be tolerant of all peoples and their beliefs. But the administration is absolutely intolerant of teachers who even say the word Christian. Kid you not, you can be fired for talking about Christianity in a state school today. Hey, they're sinners. What did you think they'd do? (laughs) The Romans, understanding a thing or two about subjugating people, had built their garrison with steps leading directly into the Gentile court of the temple. They knew how fast riots could start with these Jews, so wasted no time sending a couple hundred stormtroopers into the fray. As per standard operating procedure, they arrest the guy who seems to be the center of the problem and bound with two chains may mean his wrists and ankles. As per Agabus' prediction, if we take it with wooden literalism, it could also mean that he was chained between two guards. Oh, and by the way, from this point to the very last word in Acts, Paul will be in chains. He will be a prisoner. Hmm. But at this time, When he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him! What a scene. I mean, can you just picture the tumult? People shoving against one another, the crowd swaying and roaring, and they cried, What? I wonder if there were some in that crowd who had cried, Away with him, once before at Jesus' trial some 20 years earlier. Hmm. Obviously, Paul is but a mere man, so the purpose God has for him is different than it was with Jesus, and so is his reaction. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then, who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? What a fascinating reaction by Paul. I mean, I love it. 
Behind him, there's a crowd of angry Jews ready to kill him. Ahead are the doors that lead to the dungeons where horrific tortures are carried out. Soldiers have dragged him up the steps and are about to push through the massive doors. And in perfectly fluent, obviously educated Greek, he says, um, excuse me. <laughs> I mean, what a kick. Uh, the Egyptian. Josephus, a Jewish historian of the time, said that a Jew from Egypt had convinced a bunch of the zealots to collect in the wilderness and then march to the walls of Jerusalem, presumably by the Roman fortress, where the walls would collapse just like Jericho's did with Joshua. Well, instead, the Romans came out and killed a bunch of them while the rest ran off. The Egyptian escaped and the tribune presumed that he had now been caught by the Jews who were paying him back for misleading them. <laughs> Apparently, that Egyptian Jew either couldn't or wouldn't speak Greek. Oh, and the assassins, the Sakari, uh, they'll come up again. Very interesting, but not for today. <laughs> what I do want you to notice is that these people had been abused by many Gentiles and led astray by many Jewish false prophets. Sometimes we have to recognize that people can't hear us because they've heard so many false Voices. They've been abused. They've been misled. Don't be discouraged if you find they cannot hear you right now. Keep giving the message. Eventually it'll sink in. Well, possibly. <laughs> to the Roman leader, Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. Paul makes his case for speaking on three things. First, he's a Jew. So he should be able to address Jews. But second, he is a legal citizen of Tarsus. Remember, living somewhere didn't make you a citizen back then. Citizenship showed that you had influence and even power. And lastly, Tarsus. Remember that Tarsus was a great center of learning, having surpassed even Athens in reputation. To the soldier, that meant Paul had ability. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Why in the world would the tribune give Paul permission to speak? Well, because he didn't want a riot. <laughs> hey, this guy's Jewish, he's influential, he's well-educated, maybe he can calm the crowd and I won't even have to fill out any paperwork. But of greater interest to us is why Paul wanted to speak. To them. Did he really think that they would listen? Well, listen to these words that Paul wrote just months before these events. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. He was willing to not be saved if his own countrymen could be saved. Wow! How deeply do we care for those who hate us? I'm not so sure I'm there. I, could I even love as Paul loved his kinsmen according to the flesh? Well, at least we can aim for that. <laughs> Did you notice that Paul switched to the native language of the Hebrews? He did all he could to accommodate them. Everything possible to get them to listen to the good news of Jesus Christ. I mean, should we ever do less? 
Well, there's one other thing that we should consider about this whole matter. Why did the troubled times come? It's interesting to see how Jewish sources explain why God allowed the terrible things to happen that did during Antiochus' reign. They say their ancestors had ceased following after God. Not them, their ancestors. They recognize that that's why Jerusalem was overrun by Babylon 400 years earlier when the first temple was destroyed. And today, today, even though modern Jewish teachers accept that every ancient troubled time Israel suffered through was caused by their abandonment of God, they don't see that the events of the first century have the same cause. They rejected their Messiah, God in human form. They don't see it. Well, what about our troubled times? Can we say that God is allowing these things to happen because America, as a nation, has abandoned their God? That might be true. But if we did, we'd be missing the very lesson Paul was trying to get across. God no longer works by ethnos, by nation. The definition of the people of God is not any longer those who keep certain rules. Circumcision, sacred food, sacred time, sacred places. We are the people of God because the Holy Spirit lives within us. That's it. Sure, we will live differently than those who don't have the Spirit within them. And God does bless nations that as a group follow him. But that is not what defines us as people of God. It's really only the symptoms of a person infected with God's spirit, can we say it that way, (laughs) of a nation sold out to the worship of God. So why does God allow troubled times now? Why does he allow any trouble in a person's life? I don't know. Really, when it comes down to specific troubles, none of us know. But we do know he loves us. And he knows what humans are like. Humans tend not to listen unless there's a crisis. <laughs> now, our job as believers is to be ready in the midst of these troubled times. Like Paul standing before the prison doors with an angry mob before him. Ever ready to proclaim Jesus Christ. To speak of repentance. Admit you are a sinner. To speak of forgiveness, believe that Jesus Christ can and will forgive you. And then like Paul, we'll see, well, we're going to say that for next week, but we'll see some good things. (laughs) Today we just want to remember that through the troubled times, God is with us and we can actually do more for him than we can in easy times. Let's pray. We hope you've enjoyed this message first heard at Living Hope Church of Westport. Please feel free to worship with us, maybe this next Sunday. You can also join us online at southbeachhope.org. We'd appreciate your financial support if that is possible. We are a tiny church in a small town, but at least with the help of Sermon.net, we can share the good news with you and everyone around the world. Hopefully we'll someday be able to worship God together in person, if not in Westport, at least in the rapture.